This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Matthew chapter 4. With the help of the Lord, we will finish Matthew chapter 4 tonight. We will conclude our flashback because that's kind of what these Matthew chapter 3 and 4 has been a flashback study for us because we have been as far as chapter 14 and then we jumped back to cover these. We'll be finished with that tonight and then next week, if so be it is possible and the Lord doesn't direct us anywhere else, then next week there will be in Matthew chapter 15, I believe. But let's go ahead and start in... Let's start in verse 17. I know we covered this last week, but just to get into our flow and our context, because this is where Jesus actually began his ministry. Well, perhaps not. You could say that he began it back in verse 12 when he fulfilled a particular prophecy that was spoken of uh, in Isaiah. But in verse 17 is where he actually begins to minister unto people. It says in verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that word repent has come up a lot. Last week we dealt with it and it came up lately in preaching, I think just on Sunday night, what that word means and what that word does not mean. But it says from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, this is the same message that John the Baptist preached. This is the same message. And if you remember, verse or chapter 3 was the handoff, if you will, between John the Baptist and Christ. That's where John the Baptist's ministry peaked and then began to decline as it was ordained to do. And Jesus then sort of took the torch, in a manner of speaking, received the torch from John, as John would then fade into uh, relative obscurity and then would be arrested for standing up for what was right and then ten chapters later would be killed for his faith. And so John came on the scene in chapter 3 saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is now on the scene in verse 17 of chapter 4 saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why was that his message? Why was that his message? Why was that the first thing that needed to be dealt with? Why not um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and ye shall be saved? Why wasn't that the message that John preached and that Jesus preached at the beginning of his ministry? Well, because Jesus had not yet died. Jesus had not yet died. Because the very first thing that needs to happen in a person's life is that they need to repent of their old sins. They need to repent of the old life, turn their back on their sins. And now, now that yes, that involves directly, that involves believing on the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus has since died, been buried, has risen again, has returned to the right, sits at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us daily, if you will. But 
The very first thing that needs to happen when a person comes to realize that they are not right with God and that their life needs a change and that they need to be reconciled to God is that they need to repent of their sins. And as we were talking about this earlier today, to repent does not mean merely to feel sorry. And I know we're going to pave a little bit of the, the same road that we paved Sunday night in the message, but not everybody was here Sunday night, so no worries. You'll get this for the first time. It doesn't mean feel sorry. Now, sorrow is part of it, okay? Sorrow is part of it because the Bible talks to, tells us over in the New Testament about how godly sorrow worketh repentance or leadeth to repentance. That's when a person realizing that they're wrong, they're in the wrong, they've done something wrong, or that there are sins that need to be forgiven, that need to be repented of, well, there's a sorrow in their heart that they've done wrong. So, man, I really blew it. I did something and I just feel terrible about that. Okay, well, that's godly sorrow. But we're not intended to live there, are we? Sorrow is a vehicle. Guilt is a vehicle. Condemnation that we might feel, uh, or self-condemnation that we might feel within ourselves when we feel guilty because we've done something wrong. It's intended to be the vehicle, not the house. Does that make sense? I want, us, I want to go slow. And you know what? If we don't finish chapter 4, that's okay. Because I want to make sure that this is rightly understood by all of us here. It is the vehicle. It is intended to convey us from a place of guilt and condemnation to a place of reconciliation and victory. Okay? And I want to, I want to lean on that word, victory, a little heavy, okay, because that's why Jesus came. Now, some religions, some denominations within the whole canvas of Christianity, some denominations, they lean real heavy on the guilt and they push guilt uh, as a real, uh, it's not a factor, they, they push it as, a, as like a feature, you know, to their religion. Come be a part of our religion and experience wonderful guilt, you know. That's not what it's supposed to be about, but they lean heavy on that and they use it as a, method, as a method and as a device for control of other people's lives. And that's really a missing of the mark. Jesus came and died to deliver us. Yes, I understand all this, preacher. You, you've said this a million times before. This is basic Christianity. I get it. Hold on. He came and he died and then rose again and all of that to deliver us from our sins. We understand that. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But also to deliver us from the guilt and from the condemnation and from the sorrow that results from those sins. That's why He came. If our sins have been forgiven, okay? So, and I'm not throwing stones. I'm not throwing rocks at any group or at any people, okay? But if our sins have been forgiven and we've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, then can we cast off the Catholic and the Jewish sense of guilt once and for all? I'm not bashing Catholics and I'm not bashing Jews. God loves Jews. I love Jews. If you're a Christian, you need to love Jews. You need to love everybody, okay? And Jews are among everybody. 
We don't look down our noses at them just because they rejected Messiah 2,000 years ago. I have not yet met, I have not yet met a 2,000-year-old Jew. So we, we can't really hold them in contempt. Really, that's a wrong attitude to have. And I don't want to stray too much into that. That's a lesson for uh, the book of Romans. But can we cast off those attitudes and take guilt and throw it away once and for all? Now, if we do wrong again, if we transgress the word, if we violate some tenet of the word of God and we, we sin, and that guilt then understandably returns, well, I'm not saying that you should cast that off then, that guilt is there for a reason, and that is part of the job of the Holy Spirit of God, is to convict the heart of a wayward believer who has either gone astray or just done something that they ought not to have done. It's to convict the heart and bring them back into repentance, to turn away from whatever sin it was that they had done, and then back into reconciliation with God, back into peace with God, back into the family, so to speak. But not that we necessarily left it. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want to open up that whole can of worms. Well, where's the line, you know? Well, I guess the line is when you refuse to repent. That's where the line is, I would think. Because when a Christian sins, the Spirit of God convicts them. And that's that voice behind you that Isaiah spoke about. This is the way. Walk ye in it. Hey, you knew better. You should not have done that. You need to not do that again. You need to make that right. You need to forsake that, whatever that is. Fill in the blank for yourself, however that might be relevant. He convicts that we may, by that same godly sorrow, return to repentance. And say, well, that sounds like it's a way of life. Well, it ought not to be a way of life. If repentance is a way of life for you, you've missed the mark somewhere. You've missed the point somewhere. Repentance is supposed to be a singular, one-time event that takes the sinner and transforms and translates them in their heart and in their mind into a saint, a Christian. What do you mean a saint? I thought I had to be... Uh, canonized by the Catholic Church in order to be a saint. Don't you? Doesn't the Pope have to sign off on something and then you're called Saint so-and-so? No. A saint is someone who is a Christian. Just to keep it simple. Plain and simple. The born-again believer, washed by the blood of Jesus Christ, made a new creature in Christ, you are, by default and by definition, a saint. You don't have to perform miracles after you've died in order, in order to be called a saint. There's all these, these traditions and things that, and technicalities and outrageous fabrications in some cases that have been added to church traditions over the last 2,000 years. And all that is is just a testament to the fact that human institutions tend to mutate over time. They really do. Do you ever wonder why there's always new churches being started and always old churches that are either dying or falling apart or fossilizing and losing all of their fire in their life? You know, they used to be something... 400 years ago, but not really anymore. Or they're just a pack of traditions and there's, there's no real burning zeal that's going on in there. And Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent of what? Repent of the old life. Repent of all known sins. Throw ourselves at the feet of the cross, so to speak, and place our lives in God's hands and trust in Jesus. And then we become new creatures. Now let's move on to verse 18. It's a new paragraph. Jesus 
And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in the ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. End of paragraph. End of lesson. What's the lesson there? What's the lesson of that paragraph, verses 18 through 22? It's a very simple lesson. It's a very clear lesson. And it's one that even seasoned believers need to be reminded of on occasion. When Jesus comes by your life, it's time to drop your nets. And it's time to leave daddy's boat. It's time to adjust your priorities and follow Christ. Read what they did and then read what they didn't do. It's, well, you can't read it because it's not written what they didn't do, but you can obviously uh, deduce from what they did do what they did not do. There, was that confusing enough? That which I do not, that which I would not, that do I? Wait, that's Romans. We don't want to go there tonight. He said, or the narrative says, He saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So let's read in chapter 20, and let's read in chapter 22 how these four men reacted. Verse 20, not chapter, verse 20, and they straightway left their nets. That means they immediately left their nets and followed him. And verse 22 says, and they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now, think on that. Press these grapes for a few minutes and extract the unspoken lessons of that. They did not make excuses and they did not try to barter for time. They didn't react to Jesus. They didn't say to Jesus when Jesus showed up and said, follow me. They did not say, uh, I got a career going on here, Jesus. Don't you know? I'm a fisherman. I got fish to catch. This is my livelihood, don't you know? How can you ask me to follow you like with some kind of indignant outrage? Like some people react to God when God comes by their life and, and convicts them and tries to draw them close to Him and, and, and bring them into reconciliation with them. Some people react, well, I, I can't do that, I can't do that. All churches are full of hypocrites. You've heard that one, right? Oh, all churches are full of hypocrites. I, I, I'm not going to go, be a part of that. Or I can't do that. I've got other things going on. I've got a job. I've got a career. I've got a, I've got a, whole, I've got a whole life plan laid down here. God, don't you know? And to follow you would require me uh, to maybe lay all that on the altar. And so many people resist. And they push against that. And they fight against that. These men did not. In fact, there is no better way that they could have possibly reacted. They immediately left all. They dropped their nets. They didn't even fold them up and put them away. I don't know what you do with nets. Fishing nets, I don't know. Do you fold them up, roll them up, wad them up into a nasty tangled mess to try to untangle later on? But they, they didn't even bother putting the nets away. They just left them. And they followed this man. They probably didn't even really know who he was. His fame had not yet spread abroad. 
He had not yet done mighty works that people had seen. He just shows up on the seashore. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they did. And then these other two guys, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, they're in a boat with their dad. Maybe they weren't far from the shore. Maybe they were a few meters out. Sound carries over water. Great, we learned that over in, uh, uh, in some of the later chapters of Matthew, or middle chapters of Matthew that we were in. And he saw these two guys and he said, follow me. And they immediately left their nets, the boat, their dad. They completely reprioritized their life based on one thing. The call of God saying, come. It's time to leave the old life behind. Who here has heard of a man by the name of Billy Sunday? couple of hands here and there. It's a fairly well-known name in, in, in some circles. Some folks might have never heard of him. If you are a hardcore baseball history buff, then you've probably heard of him. He was, uh, I don't remember what position he played. I really don't. I don't, I don't think he was a hitter. I think he was, he was a, maybe he was a, a second baseman or an outfielder or something like that. But Billy Sunday was a, was a well-known baseball player in the late 1800s. Relax, we're going somewhere with this. He was well known. He was a professional. I think he was, uh, well, he was well enough known. He was well enough established to be well known. In the late 1800s, I don't even remember the name of the team that he played for. I don't know if it was the Pirates or whoever it was. But he was, and I haven't, I haven't thought of this in a while. I haven't thought of the details of it in a while. I haven't read up on the details of it in a while. But I believe he was in Chicago when he saw... He saw a church. It might have been the Pacific Garden Mission. It might have been whatever it was that Moody was doing there at the time, the church, the ministry that he was running there at the time. But while in Chicago with his team, he saw it. And he, was, he had been sitting down with his teammates, maybe out in the street somewhere, um, and he saw it and he stood up and he said to his teammates something like this, Fellas, Goodbye to the old life. And I believe he walked into that mission or something like that. And he never looked back. He got saved. I mean, he never looked back to his old life. He got saved. He committed his life to God. He committed his life to Christ. He then became a preacher not long after that. He then gave up baseball not very long after that because not that there was anything wrong with baseball. I'm not condemning baseball. There's nothing sinful about throwing a ball at somebody to, so they can hit it with a bat. Now, if you're trying to throw it at somebody to hit them and harm them, that's probably not most Christian motivation. But there's nothing wrong with hitting a ball with a bat, okay? So, but he knew that God wanted him to do something else. And so he said that to his teammates. He said goodbye to the old life. And he walked into an entirely new life. And he eventually became a traveling uh, evangelist. He became a preacher. It traveled all around and held these massive revivals all over the United States. And he did that for decades. And ultimately, you know, it took three heart attacks to kill him. And I think his first heart attack happened while he was preaching. Why are we bringing that up? It was as though Jesus had come by his life and said, follow me. And he did it. 
because he never even looked back. He never even looked back to the old life. Now, I'm not trying to put that out there like God is calling everybody into the ministry necessarily. Some he calls and many he does not. Okay. But when God comes by, when Jesus comes by anyone's life, and they feel they first feel that that pang of conviction. When they first hear the gospel itself that says, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. When they first hear the good news of the cross and of what Jesus came to do and what he accomplished, it is much the same way. Because who among us was born right with God? Who among us was born innocent, completely guiltless, didn't even have the root of sin, didn't even have the seed of sin in our heart? Who among us did not need a Savior in this life? Exactly. Not a hand in the air, including my own. None of us. We all needed a Savior. And so we were born in sin. We were shapen, uh, conceived and shapen in iniquity. We were born into this life. We grew up. We had our plans. We had our goals. We had our aspirations. We had the things that we thought that we might want to do. And it changed several times, probably. If you're like most people, you wanted to be a fireman when you were six. And you wanted to be a cop when you were eight. And then you wanted to be a rapper when you were ten. Why on earth would you want to be that? You know, but whatever, some people aspire to all manner of things. Or you, you wanted to be this, you wanted to be that, you wanted to play for the NFL, okay? You're, or maybe you wanted to do something that wasn't even that grand. Maybe you were a boring child and you were like, you know what, I just want to be a tax accountant, you know? Who knows? Some kids are weird that way. But then you heard the gospel and everything changed. Now, God may not have changed what you wanted to do for a living, but he still changed the course of your life because suddenly it wasn't all about sin and pleasure anymore. It wasn't all about living for Friday night or living for Saturday night or living for the next paycheck anymore. It wasn't all about chasing the next girlfriend or the next boyfriend or the next drink or the next high or the next whatever it was that we were all wrapped up in. Suddenly we had our eyes diverted, our gaze diverted by God Almighty upon things above and upon the kingdom of heaven that has been described as a pearl of great price and a treasure hid in a field, and that's come up again lately, and all these different things. And, and so we were changed, but we were changed because when we were spiritually doing what we had always done, just like these men, when we were spiritually on dad's boat, mending nets, and just doing our daily thing. We were doing us, as they say now. You do you. It's kind of a silly statement, but it's popular, I guess, among some. When we were just doing our thing and being ourselves and chasing our own priorities, Jesus came by when we heard the gospel preached. And he said the same thing to us. Maybe we weren't cognizant of, this, of the same language of it, okay? But he said the same thing. The same appeal was there. Follow me. Be my disciple. Jesus was saying to you. However, it was articulated in your heart. Be my disciple. And then the same thing applies to us. I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men. Now, listen carefully to this. This isn't some, this isn't some cheap throwaway line or throwaway teaching to compel believers to take on themselves or to, to pick up our own individual evangelical responsibility. It was a very 
costly lesson in teaching so that we as believers can pick up our evangelical responsibility. What did Jesus say? And I think this came up again lately. In Acts chapter 1, I think it was Acts chapter 1, the disciples were gathered. Jesus had already risen from the dead. And the disciples were gathered about. And he had appeared unto them. It was before he returned to the Father. It was also, well, obviously it was before the day of Pentecost because Jesus had not yet left. And he had to leave in order for the Spirit to be given. Jesus said to his disciples, tarry in Jerusalem, wait in Jerusalem, and you will be endued with power upon high. And then he said, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth. A born again Christian has a blood bound commission and a duty to God who made us and who has saved us to be a witness to the lost. Now that witness can manifest a number of different ways. It can be something as simple as an invitation to a church, your church, preferably. Or it can be an open, a door opens up in a conversation with them and you're able to actually share the whole gospel with them and say, hey, you know, what do you know about Jesus? Do you know that he's alive? Do you know that he died for your sins? Not just, not just the world in general, but for like your sins personally, man. Did you know that? I mean, there's times where if, you're, if you have a mind for that kind of an opportunity, God can actually open that door. He did it with these guys. He still does it with believers today. Just because he's not actually walking by, um, walking by the office complex where we live, or we live, Hope you don't live in an office complex. You know. But just because he doesn't walk, he doesn't walk by the office park that we're working in and interrupt us at our computers or whatever it is that we're doing for a living, interrupt us, walk by uh, over in the uh, in the the rail yard over there or out in one of the oil fields and say, "Hey, follow me." Doesn't mean that he's not still saying that to people unsaved and saved alike. There's a lot of believers even. It's not to say that they're not following him. But they're not really realizing it in their lives. And they just sort of have their routine and they're comfortable with it, but they're not really reaching out to anyone with it. Even if they've been saved five, ten years or more. They get comfortable and just thinking, well, the, this is my little thing, this is my little church, and this is my little group that I'm with, and this is what I do. It's like, well, Jesus said, follow me. Now make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Have you ever prayed and asked the Lord? And in fact, if you haven't, I dare you to. Have you ever asked the Lord, give me a burning, heavy, burden for the souls of the lost. If you've never done that, I dare you to. And I dare you to mean it when you pray it. God, give me a real and a burning, heavy burden for the lost. In fact, so much so that I have trouble 
sleeping at night if I'm not trying, at least when I can, to reach somebody for you? Think about this now. This was so critically important a mission that it brought Jesus to the earth from heaven to be born as a man and to die a wretched and agonizing death on a cross. I'm not trying to just lay it on thick here. This is something that all Christians need to remember. He died such a death as he did to save, to save people from their sins and from the other things we talked about as well. Guilt, condemnation, sorrow, all those things that came as a result of their sins. To save them from all of that. And then return to the Father that he, you know, the whole work could be completed. And now, here we are, the body of Christ. As many of us are born again and have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, have accepted Him as Savior. Here we are, the body of Christ. Are we not as His body, His hands, His feet, his mouth, his ears. Are we not? I heard a song years ago. It was a Catholic song, but it was a good song. See, they can write some good songs. Not everything that they write is full of, you know, things that are wrong. But it was a beautiful song. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks. Compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. That's how the lyrics went. It doesn't sound very musical when you're just narrating it, okay? But it's actually a very nice song. We need to remember that. Jesus came by these guys' life and said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. He's come by every one of our lives and he said the same thing to us one way or another. So let's be fishers. Let's be fishers. Let's move on. Verse 23, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And His fame went throughout all Syria and they brought unto Him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic and those that had the palsy and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And so this whole, the whole back half of chapter 4 opens up to us the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry. After He had been tempted of the devil, after He had uh, fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah there in, in verses 12-16, through 16, He came on the scene preaching and teaching. He came on the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then He chose His first disciples. These first four men, He went and picked them and they followed Him. Something about him, something about them, however it was that God orchestrated it, now Jesus had people to help him out. Praise God for men and women that are dedicated to the gospel and the ministry of Jesus Christ that are willing to help, that are willing to throw in and not just be ministered unto, but help in the ministering unto others. Thank God for them. And so now he has his team and now he has gone. Now he goes about in verse 23 forward 
all through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And then look in verse 24 what happened. His fame went throughout all Syria. It's like now the knowledge of him and his reputation has gone outside of Judea and into Gentile lands. Syria, those weren't Jews. They didn't have the covenants. They, they knew nothing of the law of God or very little of the law of God or, of, or any of the Old Testament or, or any, any of that at all. But his fame even went throughout Syria and even they brought people unto him, all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases. And let's look at this for just a moment. Diverse diseases and torments. People possessed with devils. People who were Mentally unhinged. Lunatic is the word that the Bible uses, but that, you know, that refers to all manner of mental illness and insanities and things like that. The God who makes the mind can still heal the mind. A lot of time we think of great dramatic healings like, oh, I've got a cancer and I'm going to be dead next week and then God moves and a person is healed and, and they're miraculously delivered from that. But He does that still, yes, but He also heals ailments of the mind. The same, body that can, the same God who heals the body, can He not heal the brain? Can He not? I've stood on that stubbornly for many years and refused to believe otherwise. God is still a healing God. He really is. Oh, well, no. No, no, that was, just, that, was just for the, that was just for the apostles way back there in the book of Acts. That's not for us today. Oh, yes, it is. That gift was never taken away. It is a spiritual gift. It is given by God via the Holy Spirit. No one person owns that gift. God owns that gift. And He gives it as people believe and as the need demands and as His will is pleased. So yes, those things are still very real. We had a healing in this church. I still talk about it. And it was miraculous. And it was a tremendous blessing. And maybe share the details of that another time. We've shared it before. But, and it wasn't some great big theatrical Benny Hinn type of thing either. It really wasn't. God simply moves and does. And it's done. And believers who witness it or experience it are edified. And they give glory to God. God is glorified. And a person then has a testimony they can share with others. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Jesus did this. He healed all of these people. And there followed Him great multitudes. Verse 25, and we're about to close. Verse 25, There followed Him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. The Word was out. Somebody was on the scene in Judea. Preaching and teaching and healing and changing people's lives forever. And that person had a name. And his name was Jesus. And people came to see him and to hear him and to experience, to experience whatever he was willing to do for them. The same Jesus is alive today. No, he's not walking the earth. We know where He is. He sits at the right hand of God. But He's still doing. He's still doing what people need Him to do. He's still in the business of saving souls, of saving lives, of saving marriages and families. All of it. 
What's our takeaway from tonight's lesson? He's still doing what he's always done. He's doing it through his believers a lot of times. And he's still calling people to follow him. He's still calling people to follow him. And he's still making people fishers of men. Wherever men and women are willing, he's making them fishers of men. So let's be willing and let's learn from the examples of the examples of these men of God, these men that would become men of God there in chapter four. Let's drop some nets, leave some boats, rearrange some priorities and say to our Lord, here am I. You just tell me what you want me to do. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.